But now we don't have any value. All right, so I saw Meshuggah recently, um, and it was, uh, I think, the weirdest bill I've ever seen. It was Meshuggah headlining, primary support was Converge, and the opener was Torch. That's so... Um, so one fun band, a.k.a. Torch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I find Meshuggah fun because I have autism, um, and that's they're <laughs> a band for us. Uh, that's our culture. <laughs> oh, when, don't get me when wrong. The entire I, audience I like Meshuggah. Is... <laughs> uh, I, I like Meshuggah just as much as the next aggressively guy. counting. <laughs> <laughs> Meshuggah did You're one like... of like my favorite fixes to a member of the band being unable to tour. When Frederick was unable to tour, <laughs> they just got Per Nilsson from Skull Symmetry, and they were like, "You're in Meshuggah yeah. now <clears throat> for a year." And they toured with him for like a year. It was such a funny, just a guy, just Per Nilsson. He's not even like, I mean, yeah. he's a famous guy and he's a very good guitarist, but he's not like a big metal guitarist, right? No, and, then, and they're at Meshuggah is big enough now that they could have reached out to goddamn near anyone. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And like, they were like, is... no, you're a Swedish buddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, as you might have been able to tell, listener, we are doing a unholy trinity episode yeah the chaos configuration first one actually so Ooh, that's right we were, we were just the talking just before the, the show about how we've been doing this for five years now mm-hmm. my god yeah and now there's a few configurations of the cast right there's the stopgap configuration which is me and langdon then there's the old school configuration which is gareth and langdon and then there's the anti-langdon alliance which is me and Gareth. Mm-hmm. Where no anime gets mentioned. None. <laughs> yes. You're right. We didn't actually mention any anime on the on the employee show. Right. And where we talk about purely abstract, existentialist, scent-based literature. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Has to have smell. Langdon hates smelling. Did you know that? Yeah. Well, I do. It's due to my uh, chronic wisdom that I, I loathe it. It's the the worst of the senses. It probably is the worst of the senses, actually. Like, when you rank them. When you number rank one, them, wait, you're never going to guess it. Hmm? Number it's one is touch. Temperature. Temperature, that's number one. Is that, that's not, <laughs> that's temperature not, is not a sense. It's not a sense. No, it is. No, touch is like six different senses. So you have, like, touch, pressure, or uh, pressure, temperature, passing of time. These are all technically senses. Positive time isn't. See, touch. you know that if you had my wisdom on board, don't you? Wait, wait, wait. Are no you saying that like senses. you touch time as it passes? You touch time with your brain. I do. <laughs> I, I reach out and I touch. I touch time with my mind. I mean, you, you can't do that. If I you, strum like, it like a harp. If you smoke like gas station fifty times salvia, then you can touch time with your mind. You can probably smell time eventually. What I uh, find insane is that period where salvia was legally acquirable, and I, I think that that was done by the FDA to uh, encourage people not to do drugs. <laughs> like, uh, th- there was a time when, like, 16-year-olds could buy salvia. Like, 50 times extract salvia in this country from, like, any he- creepy head shop. I mean, listen, I'm I'm very grateful for that because it launched the career of my favorite YouTuber, uh, Big Money Salvia, a.k.a. Eric, hilarious guy. 
he was actually on Excellent. Always Sunny in Philadelphia and in a Metallica music video. Um, and he's just a really funny okay. guy. And he started his career that's, that's by... sick career. Yeah, by doing Salvia and filming himself doing stupid shit like trying to garden or get takeout or shit like that. It's hilarious. Well, I I would not have done that on account of I'm never going to do Salvia ever again ever in my entire life. Nothing could ever compel me to do it. Listen, man, I'm... I famously, uh, like among my circle of friends, have done weed like three times and each one ended in like a massive anxiety attack. So I just like, I stick to alcohol if I want to destroy my body from within. Yeah, the one time I did salvia, oh, I'm a... like, the one time I did like strong salvia, there wasn't just like a little bit of a head rush for a few seconds. Um, my brain got stuck in a loop of this bit from Futurama. Uh, um <laughs> uh, the, the episode uh, where uh, Professor Farnsworth um, creates a machine that can uh, show different realities, yeah. and he inv- he has a, a a really long finger that he calls a finger longer. Yeah, finger longer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's right in- what life would be like if I invented the finger longer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Imagine that looping for uh, like a trillion years. Welcome um, to well, the Joe, Joe Hogan good. show. Listen up. <laughs> Uh, welcome to the Joe Rogan <laughs> Show. Um, our interviewee this week is Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Italian are going to do a, a dance for us. Yeah, and cry. He's going to cry and talk about apple cider. <laughs> that was what really I really cool. love he is claimed like, apple cider caused him to... Um, hallucinate. Yeah, both hallucinate and stay up for twice as long as anyone has ever been awake for. <laughs> <laughs> 11, 11 yeah, days is the, it's the limit and after that 11, want... after like 8 days you would get so fucked up you'd never do it again and be like doing a thousand times salvia but John Peterson doubled that after one drink of cider I, I'm willing to believe him mostly because I want to also do this and if he was <laughs> lying then I can't so I can't stomach the thought that it wasn't true even though it very obviously wasn't true <laughs> Why well, lie about that? It that was a bummer. A weird at... thing to lie about. Jordan Peterson can't stomach anything. Because That's he's right. eaten nothing but meat for the past five years. He does strike me as someone who has constantly got a bad tummy. Like... <laughs> he's, he's also a weak coward, and I could overpower him. It, it was a bummer that, that I was the only one at the Mashuga show with a mask. But, mm. you know, yeah, they're all going to get a... COVID, and I'm not. I've got I, a trip been... coming up to Vegas, and I'm I'm afraid of like catching the turbo American COVID. <laughs> I've been like so um, like bad at COVID and masking for the last year that when you said you were wearing a mask, I was like like a Slipknot mask or like a, <laughs> like your like special mask you put on. That was like, oh no, wait, this is <laughs> still got an epidemic of a deadly disease. Yeah, it's it hasn't gone away, even though everyone. It's like oh, I'm bored of it, though. Um, or I got that. I got that new. Spread... Bo- yeah, go ahead. Oh, I got that new booster, and uh, gotta be honest, that shit, that shit rocked. I just took a fat ass nap the next day. That was it. That was the only side effect. Yeah, I I'm planning so on getting mine on, on Wednesday. But I, I was saying that maybe we should start try to start a thing where you're supposed to show up to Mishuga shows with a special kind of mask. Yeah, like Slipknot, but for the fans, it's um, it's a counting mask, uh, <laughs> because 
everyone in that audience has autism, like me. So <laughs> you need the counting mask to count better. Is it like the the electronic mask in Watch Dogs, where you can like put like graphics on your LED mask screen? Yeah, and you and can it... make it like a pig. I wish that game was good. The first Same. one is good. Really, the first I one... thought the first one was bad, and they and they sorted it out by the second one. The first one's not bad. First one's not bad. Second one is good, and then it's all downhill from now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what book are we discussing? Oh, we don't do books anymore because I can't read. Oh, yeah. Oh, we didn't stop because of the boost, though. Yeah, my eyes, my eyes did fall out, so I left that part out. My eyes fell out of my head. Uh, they rolled down a drain, mm -hmm. um, and they uh, kind of like the spaghetti meatball, you know, from the mm. song. Uh, and yeah. I can't, I can't read because I'm still in that salvia experience uh, from like twenty <laughs> years ago. Yeah. It's just that one bit from Future Arm, just looping until the yeah. sun burns out in the sky. Yeah, I, we're actually I a hallucination. Read. Yeah, of, of Gareth's. I can read, but I have sworn a vow not to. Powerful. That's wise. Strong stuff. And it's only through this that we have been able to come in contact with the novel Piranesi by Susanna Clark. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The audiobook specifically. It's transmitted to me through the wisdom. You, I went outside and like touched a bunch of trees and the bark like told me the story. Yeah, that's good. We, we read the Vore trilogy and this enabled us a certain, you know. <laughs> all, all books are contained within the Vore. Yeah, mm. certain feats. We can, I let ants crawl over me, like all over me. And then I'm like, that was a good novel. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, Susanna Clarke's Piranesi, uh, really fucking good book, isn't it? I think yeah. we can kind of stop it there because it's like. <laughs> yeah, good episode. Yeah, yeah um, we well, nailed it again, hole in one. <laughs> yeah, we did it. So Most consistent did... podcast out here. Just yeah. hey, that, that book rocks. Okay. Crushing it. Yeah, that was tight ten minutes. Like, okay, let's go. Yeah. Uh, let's go to the golf course. Uh, <laughs> uh, so tea time. I think th this book is a good candidate for the first triple episode because there's very little book almost. Right, it's like a very retreating book it's very sparse and we can fill it in with the chaos of us trying to talk to each other um yeah. i mean make it, it unintelligible let, let, let's talk about susanna clark first then yes if people don't know there's there's like three great british fantasy authors right now and we've talked about them all on the show uh well we have now at least so uh alex phoebe there's does mordu and um Malarkey book, absolutely, absolutely <laughs> brilliant. The Joe Biden book, yeah, yeah, the anti Joe Biden because he's actually a no Malarkey guy. Yeah, digital um, Joe Biden. Yeah. There is <laughs> Brian Catlin who did the War trilogy. Yes. Again, stunning, darker, uglier maybe than the other ones, um, and Susanna Clark, who writes a novel every twenty years or so, and they are has written two that all are amazing yeah so and there's a fourth one which shall not be named whoa the i dark. guess michael Warcock's still alive <laughs> <clears throat> yeah not for you, michael did I'm i tell you I, I met him once for like a like less than a minute um so i gotta you tell you something guys the thing about his name <laughs> yeah i was like <laughs> more cock <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Guys, I, anyway, I, I love your work. And then walk <laughs> away. <laughs> I thought I wouldn't tell you this because I was afraid of what it might unleash. But I will tell you now that someone contacted us. I don't remember how they did it, whether it was like they tweeted at us or they DM'd us or Patreon or something like that. There's a Michael Moorcock masterclass. What, like the Alan Moore masterclass? Oh, wait. No, it is an Alan Moore thing. I got them confused. Oh, uh, yeah. I thought you, you said Alan you might, Moore. Yeah, he's, so, another, so, he's another British fantasy writer, right? Um, ten. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, Jerusalem was like staggeringly amazing. I, I, it would probably be, be called fantasy. It's definitely got fantastic elements in it. Yeah. So anyway, there's an I Alan Moore masterclass. Sorry. Um, yeah, someone asked us to review it. That's yeah, um, we could do that. I love that. I love that guy. He's got he's a wizard, Harry. Hmm. Literal, yeah. Looks like Hagrid as well. And no, um, that's right. <clears throat> it was a it was a BBC thing. It was like on the BBC's website, and you go yeah. on there, and you, it, it's it's kind of like um what is, uh, there's skill things that you will see adverts for on YouTube. Skillshare. Yeah, it's kind of it was it was basically like the BBC doing a Skillshare thing, but with Alan Moore. I think they've done some others with various people. I know yeah. um, Neil Gaiman, who is tangentially cr- um, related to uh, Susanna Clark, has one as well, but it's through a different thing where you like, and a bunch of people like Neil Gaiman and people like Stephen Pinker uh, teach you how to be as wise as they are. I'd love um, to take the Steven Pinker one to learn about why eugenics is actually good. Like, why being on Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's plane is actually a good thing. Yeah. I went there for activities. I'm like, no, we know that. Steven. That's, that's what we're, that's what we're mad about. <laughs> uh, allegedly, allegedly, um, Susanna Clark, not allegedly a very good author as Gareth mentioned. She also won a Hugo award for, I mean, if you've listening to this, you've heard of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I mean, if you have eyes and like a brain yeah. that's able to process language, you have heard of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It was like everywhere right when it came out. Um, very much an obsession. And like her style is, you know, of that. I think you situated very, very well, Gareth, within like English fantasy because it's very much of that um, heritage. Right, like a sort of Dick, Dickens kind of like version of a fantastical England, very Neil Gaiman um, and so on. Whereas I would say Alex Phoebe and Brian Catling draw from different a different sort of like British influence. Hmm. Uh, yeah, but the dark, uh, more alternative. Uh, exactly. Closer to Moorcock than uh, yeah. Tolkien or someone. Yeah, exactly. And hers is more whimsical. Not to say that it's, um, you know, sometimes associated with whimsical, like shallow or uninteresting. It's just more, a bit brighter, I would say. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, it, it, it's a massive, massive book for a yeah. start. And it's, it, it is a truly epic book that goes from, like, uh, the fields of England to Nap- the Napoleonic War to Venice to the fairy realms. And, um, yeah, just... and it really earns that heft. Like it's not padded out with anything. It's just a constant stream of amazing little, not, not even vignettes, like no- novel length episodes. Um, yeah. It, it totally earns the, like um, I was just looking into Susanna Clark's background and she, she's literally written two novels, Jonathan Strange appearing in ABC. She's had a, um, 
a book of short stories as well. And you, if you were to go to a literary agent with a thousand page manuscript about um, <laughs> magic and fairies that's uh, written as a book from the, like the 18th, 19th century and is so dense and has its own world of British magic in it. And it's, you'd get laughed out of their office. It would be insane. But um, yeah, she completely pulled this off, won every award going, uh, the World Fantasy Award, Locus Award, British Book Awards, Times Best Novel of the Year, Hugo Award, uh, yeah, she won that one, Booker Prize Longlisted, Whitbread First Novel, Guardian First Book Award, just absolutely knocking it out of the park. I really um, love how the bookers here prove our, our long-holding theorem at death, death Sentence that being long-listed or short-listed for the booker is better than winning the booker. Oh, very much so. <laughs> especially so especially <laughs> in the dark year where they um, had that awful um, Margaret Atwood book on there <laughs> and absolutely no reason. I got three, three fucking copies. This kept sending me hardback copies. <laughs> yeah, but, I, I, yeah. I don't. I don't know what's going on. That that that's actually a real um a real problem with uh, book publicity. I I have so many multiple copies of stuff. Some of it I like, and some of it I like, try and give to friends or something. But yeah, I, they keep sending like multiple copies. I don't know what's going on with literally every book publicity department. No matter whether it's like a tiny little um, small press or repeater books, who just like they're obviously communists because they want to share their books with everyone. Um, <laughs> By the way, uh, two other pertinent facts about Clark, which I think are interesting. One, she worked for Simon & Schuster, aka one of the most prestigious publishing companies on the planet. And she, there she edited cookbooks hmm. uh, for a decade, which is very interesting and kind of fits into the like the whimsical fantasy kind of fairy-like English uh, fan, uh, fantasy kind of trope. And Clark's partner is Colin Greenland, um, a celebrated and decorated science fiction author in his own right. He was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award and Arthur C. Clarke Award and so on. And famously, I know him because he's a Michael Moorcock uh, researcher and writer. He's published uh, two books on Michael Moorcock, um, including the, the, Entro the Entropy Exhibition, which is a very, very interesting book about Moorcock and the British New Wave in science fiction that I read a few years ago and kind of helped me situate that entire literary movement. So it, it, it's interesting that he's um, her partner. And um, me and Landon were talking about this before the show. So he uh, sent the um, a short story called The Ladies of Grace Adieu, which was collected into a short story collection. Uh, he sent that to Neil Gaiman, mm -hmm. who people may know of. Um, <laughs> Uh, with, without uh, Clark actually even knowing. And Gaiman was like totally in love with this uh, short story. He, he called it like watching someone sit down and play the piano for the first time and she plays a sonata. Hmm. That's fantastic. And then Gaiman puts that along to his editor and um, uh, that editor goes and puts the story in a, a sci-fi anthology called Starlight One. And she gets the award for that, the World Fantasy Award for Best Novella, some uh, out of that. 
Yeah, that was in 2001 before um, uh, Strange and Oral came out. So, yeah, she, like, kind of, Neil Gaiman kind of, like, discovered her, which is pretty amazing, like, to be able it, to say you've been discovered by Neil Gaiman. It feels similar to Kate Bush being discovered by David Gilmore, who happened to be her neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, a lot of people like to clown on Neil Gaiman, and I get it. Like, there's a lot to clown on. He's kind of, like, goofy, and he tends to, like, put his foot in his mouth a bunch. And I do think, like, his literary work hasn't exactly aged very well. But A, by all accounts, he's a very good person. And B, he's done so much more than just his own literary work for the genre. Um, like, he puts his name on books, you know, that get republished and no one has have ever heard of them. I covered um, Hope Mirless's Blood in the Mist that he helped uh, push and, and, and blurbed. Uh, uh, Susanna Clark and, and many, many more names that Neil Gaiman has kind of like sought out. He has a very good taste, I would say, discerning taste for literature. And then he puts his mark on it and helps like good literature be published. So I'm like an unironic Neil Gaiman defender. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he's kind of gotten to the point in his career where he's kind of almost an elder statesman and he can put his rubber stamp on stuff and, you know, it's pretty decent. And he's kind of helping the sci-fi and fantasy world more than he is like a working novelist writing book after book right now yeah yeah he, sure. he spent a lot of time in the past like 10 years pushing a lot of um at the time smaller authors like <clears throat> obviously it's not that he's the credit for nk jemison becoming as big as she is she's the credit for that but he did provide a prominent platform relatively early in her career of like highlighting like hey this is a great um contemporary fantasy author who online behavior aside she can be kind of a goober online um uh took part in the isabel fall stuff in part um yeah other things like that but um likewise like uh, a recent um semi-recent run of roger zelazny reprints were in part because he is such a hyper vocal fan of roger zelazny and was like flabbergasted that things like lords of light had fallen out of publication so yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it, it, the classic thing of um, you you have to be in the know a little bit to know like why he has the esteem that he does. Because if you just read, if you read Sandman, it makes sense. If you start reading his like his novels, maybe it doesn't make so much sense because mm. those age um at different rates, I'd say. Um, <laughs> but mm. the more you know about like his, as, as we've been mentioning, the more you know about his relation to the publishing side of the industry, and especially um. Uh, helping to resurrect these older novelists for younger audiences, as well as, you know, highlighting these newer uh, authors. It would be amazing if people didn't have a fondness for him, really. Mm. Also, the, the Netflix Sandman show is pretty, it's pretty good. Like, it's not mind-blowing, but it was really decent. And... Um... He spent a long time waiting to get that adaptation right because he could have very easily put it out in like the 90s and just made a quick buck on a crappy film adaptation. Uh, but he he waited until he could get it exactly the way he wanted it. And... You co-signing that means more than a bunch of other people I've heard because I uh, <laughs> I was incredulous. It, it's I mean. Um... It's, it's not. It has the same flaws that all uh, modern prestige TV has. Um, 
so like pacing for one uh but it's actually actually pretty decent so i hate to do this and barge in but and be the bell of bad news um fellow sandals has died yep i heard that earlier this morning i just saw it right now <clears throat> sorry I didn't, I didn't catch that fellow sandals uh, saxophonist played with Sandra, John Coltrane, um, and everybody else. Like he's been yeah. playing the sax since the fifties, basically. Um, recently collaborated with uh, Floating Points on one of the best albums of twenty twenty or twenty twenty one. Was it? I don't remember. Yeah. Anyway, like legendary, legendary saxophone player. If you care really about jazz, cool. it's a it's a big, big, big yeah. loss. Full life, though that that man For sure. a full ass life. Sure. Great legacy, yeah. Okay, sorry, I just saw it. I was like, I gotta talk about this. Uh, so, so back to Susanna Clark. I have a sort of funny relation with her. So I read, like everyone under the sun, I read Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell when it came out. Got it in hardback. I think, I think literally everyone who really likes books who was reading fifteen years ago has a copy of it somewhere. Um, <clears throat> I liked it, but and now I'm going to say uh, words of darkness. Um. I was definitely much more in a Neil Stevenson mood at the time when it came to that big kind of Baroque approach. Stop. Booing and hissing. Stop. <laughs> Boo. Um, obviously immensely talented author. I just, it didn't strike me the way that it struck a lot. So when I heard that she had a new one coming, all I remembered was like, oh, 15-ish years ago. Because I haven't really reread it since then. Um I was like, oh, she has a new one. And I guess it's kind of, mm, all right, well, whatever, I'll... But then I heard a bunch of interesting things. So, one, it's maybe about a fifth the length of her last book. So already it's like, okay, that's <clears throat> that's a big structural change. And she's a deliberate enough author that it didn't feel it didn't feel like okay, I'm tired of writing a big book, so now let's do this. It's like okay. Then I hear from people like, oh, it's about a a house where the top floor is in the clouds and the bottom floor is in the ocean and only the middle floor is habitable. Again, I hadn't read it at that point. I'm just hearing this from people. And I go, yeah, that's really weird. Um, then hearing that it's uh, it's written like a dream journal. And I'm like, okay, yeah. And it's like, oh, there's also, uh, is that, what is that? Is that a hint of, a hint of Borges in there? And I'm like, okay, I'm buying this right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, and this so, one made me eat a shitload of crow. I was like, damn, I'm stupid. She's good. great. Yeah, you are, she is. So shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> shut up about Neil Stephenson. Um, for me, you know, when I... So, uh, okay. Ronnie, my wife, God bless her soul. Um, she uh, usually reads books that I recommend. And then when there's a book that she recommends to me, she, she insists that I mention it whenever I mention the book. So she read Piranesi before me, and she absolutely loved it, and she also recommended it to me because, quote, you like weird books, um, so you'll enjoy this book. And going into it, when I researched it, I saw two things. One, I was like, wait, why is it called Piranesi? Um, and then I found out about perhaps the person this title is alluding to, um, Giovanni Battista Piranesi. Yep. who was an 18th century artist um, who did a lot of architectural stuff. His father was a stonemason, but he also um, did like drawings of imaginary <coughs> halls and imaginary prisons 
which mm. will become relevant once you talk about the storyline. And second of all, I saw not uh, Borges comparisons, but House of Leaves comparisons. Um, so, yeah, for sure. It's like, I would say it's, and again, I don't mean it in a, as a criticism. It's a lighter, more grounded, both House of Leaves and Borges, right? Mm. It doesn't have like the full-on feverish, anxiety-inducing fever, uh, feeling, sorry, of House of Leaves, nor the... <laughs> pedantic attention to detail that some of Borges' works, uh, again, not a criticism, right? Just an observation. Have. Yeah, he's substantially more autistic than she is. <laughs> I was waiting I for you say to that. say that, so thank you. Yeah, exactly. Thank <laughs> you for saying and saying that. Um, so, <laughs> so, like, I picked up the book, and it's very interesting. I, I mentioned in the beginning of this episode how it kind of, like, retreats um, from the reader. Like, it's not all there and a lot of it is beneath the surface so it, it does the title motion that the book makes textual which i i was like ooh, yeah ooh. the writer in me was like oh that's good oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> so like uh uh giving a synopsis is very easy right because the plot points is not really what the book is about um so there's a person and you start out a novel not knowing what they're called um, but eventually, I mean, they're called Piranesi. It doesn't mean they are Piranesi, but they're called Piranesi. And they are in this house um, made out of infinite halls and vestibules which connect the halls. Um, the halls are filled with statues, and all of the statues are unique. And they're also very clearly communicating tropes of um, mythology and you know, just human culture, right? So you have minotaurs. By the way, once I read the word minotaur, my house of leaves fan <laughs> I was yeah. going apeshit. Like, no, 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 not again. Um, <laughs> I think that was intentional. Yeah, that 100%. It, it can't not have been. Um, and, and also, you know, um, he, uh, heroic figures and giants and all sorts of uh, other kind of like story points. Um, the upper levels of the house are filled with clouds and the lower levels are filled with an ocean. And in the middle lives Piranesi, who's kind of surviving, right? They can fish and they know the halls and they have like a semi-religious relationship with the house. Yeah. Um, they, they... Like, like imagine like a like a castaway book, like uh, Robinson yeah. Crusoe, except in like a stately home. Yeah, you're in an exactly. you're in an M.C. Escher or in a uh, or in a Borges or. This is one of the things that, especially as like a big literary fan, one of the things that sort of gets um, buried in the history of these things is that like Piranesi was one of the primary architectural inspirations for both the artwork of M.C. Escher as well as the literature of Borges, and through that indirectly films like Labyrinth. Like he's sort of one of those guys. He's up there with William Blake in terms of being one of the most influential engravers. And so it's like she's read her shit. She's read her shit. Also, yeah. um, being uh, being a guy who's only ever played the video game Dark Souls, uh, getting a lot of strong Dark Souls vibes from, from uh, these ones. Yeah, I, mm. I would say so. I mean, the statuesque, <laughs> like the size and the way that everything is like it's sparse and in stone, but it communicates a sense of history and meaning, I think uh, draws a lot of inspirations from... Yeah. The kind of like... It's obviously a human thing of a prison or a um, 
towers and things but it seems to be like an inhuman scale and it seems to be uh, like almost this like hysterically put together as like okay more more bridges more archways yeah. more vaulted ceilings and, and while we're doing in he is in Anorlando. This is set in Anorlando. Uh... <laughs> so, so while we're covering the part where he uh, keeps getting shot by uh, arrows by silver knights. Yeah. Welcome so to our was... episode on Dark Souls Part Four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so while we're doing all the literary comparisons, there's two more that we have to mention. One is the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, there's a bunch of names. Um, and allusions to scenes from the Chronicles of Narnia in the book, like yeah. Ketterly, who's one of the main characters, um, and also a lot of the scenes that the statues describe. Um, and, it's, and it's also sort of a portal fantasy, right? People falling through a door into another place. And then lastly, of course, and cannot be ignored, Plato's allegory of the cave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're deep in some sort of structure where uh, shadows and images are simulacra of the real world. And if you recall, when we did um, Malarkoi, Alex Fabius Malarkoi, I also put this book into the bucket of Platonist fantasy. Um, so as Piranesi is interacting with the statues, it's very clear that the point is that he's interacting with the shadows of the world and not just the shadows of the tales which they tell, but also the shadows of the meanings of the tales, right? Like, he as- ascribes to them feelings of duty and empathy and bravery and so on, which, of course, the tales themselves don't hold, right? They're describing things in the world, but he is twice removed from reality, just like in the allegory of the cave. And I won't do the divided line again. Go listen to the Malakoy episode for my, like, Platonist uh, breakdown. Um, the problem is not that you're looking at a shadow of the real thing. You're actually looking at a shadow of a shadow. Um, so Piranesi also taps into that kind of like uh, language, I would, uh, a dictionary, I would say, that is very much derived from Plato's work. What, what's funny about your analytic there is, so it, get, it gets complicated by the bit of, um, this plays subliminally on, on two other elements. One is like sailor mythology. Um, it relies quite a lot on like nautical stuff where it's like yeah. the navigation by the stars, the movement of the tides, um, certain ways that he handles navigation, uh, even certain like su- uh, superstitious stuff. This ties into sort of the castaway novel elements that um, that uh, Gareth was uh, putting together. There's also the actually, second... Um, uh, it's, it's the lighthouse, and he's uh, Robin Pattinson's, char- Fa- Rob Pattinson's character. You're fond <laughs> of me lobster, aren't you? fucking great movie i love when the lights come out of his face um great movie uh that's actually still probably my favorite of uh of his films although northman was very fucking good didn't like it myself but fun fact did you know that the la times the new york times and the chicago tribune in all three of their reviews didn't mention the word hamlet once in their reviews of the fucking insane to me anyway um the other bit is tarot imagery which um recurs actually from jonathan strange and mr norrell and in both instances she she buries it not super far down but just a bit where in the case of ketterly he he is the magician or the hierophant partly because 
um, to explicate the Narnia thing, uh, Ketterly was the last name of the uncle from the yeah. magician's nephew, uh, yeah. and was through magical right was able to access Narnia, which is a pretty, <laughs> if you've read this book, you go, Oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. That's, that's super deliberate. That's crazy deliberate. Not to mention that they have Mr. Tumnus as one of the statues. <laughs> yeah. uh, so but you yeah, also have the other whose name I forget. Lawrence. Is he Lawrence? One of them. Um, who functions as uh, the emperor and the main character who works as the fool. Now, in both instances, what's funny is the two characters who have entrapped Piranesi, uh, or one of them is entrapped and the other one's aware and just doesn't do anything to help, play the role almost as, uh, almost as Eden has said it, that this world is subliminal to, to the other world. Um, and that they are searching for something that's retreating through this space. And as a result, the, the way that, um, presence in this place reduces your mind to ruin has reduced Piranesi to the role of the fool. And only the fool can find the occulted hidden wisdom and things like that. So that he gets yeah, yeah. used as like a divine rod. But the funny thing is the book winds up deliberately sort of it, it evokes the sort of uh, the fool's journey through the tarot where it positions like the secondary hypothesis of what if, what if this world is in fact super liminal to the world and these are not the shadows. These are the real things that have imbued their shadow back onto the world and that through becoming the fool, Piranesi is able to actually engage directly with the fundamental force of fucking phenomenal i love so, the occult I, wait no no but i want to i want to challenge that because i think nope. first of nope. all you're, do, you're doing calvino to the book stop doing calvino to the book i can't uh, not do calvino to the book i've read too much <laughs> calvino <laughs> uh second of all i think that the beauty of the book uh, okay so this book only there are several or, or a type of book that only makes sense or only becomes very good on the last page Right, the last page is kind of like yeah. the keystone. By the way, spoilers for Piranesi. Um, the last, the last page is kind of like a keystone, and I think up until that page, what you're saying is correct, and that's the reading, right? Like he's not in the world of shadows; he's in the world of ideals. Um, the quote-unquote villain of the book, right? The fucked up. Uh, uh, delusions of grandeur professor who who found this kind of like portal into the other side um that's what he's saying he says it explicitly right this is like the world of the wisdom of the ancient lawrence on say say les that's how you pronounce it i don't know it's yeah, french it's okay. sales i guess sales whatever um so this is kind of like the debris of the world of the ideals like in plato's um conception and and this is like the cavity left behind it but at the end of the book, there's... Are you ready? I'm also doing Calvino to the book. There's a mercurial sort of like chemical wedding between the two egos of the main character. There's Sorensen, and that's the person that he was before the house, and Piranesi, which is the person he was after the house. And if the point was, oh, Piranesi was the one to touch the ideas then Piranesi would have stayed. But instead, I think what um, Clark is trying to tell us is the world is 
right? It's not shadows. It's not ideals. It's not abstract and it's not an illusion. It just is. It's what it, everything that exists is the world and there's an acceptance, right? So the, the book ends with the protagonist constructing a third identity and it ends with this like, you know, they close their eyes and they feel the wind and they're, they're in pain and they're sad, but they're also hopeful because they feel the house everywhere they go, right? They feel like um, it's in the world and, and the world is, is good enough. You see what I'm saying? So it's more than yeah, just... It's, yeah, it, go ahead. It, 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 as you're mentioning, so um, uh, famously for people like uh, me and Gareth and less but still presently so for people like Eden, there's a book called The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosengrotz. Um, yes. Which is a semi-anonymous book. Uh, very big if you're into occultism, Gnosticism. This this is a monumental book in that world. It's about alchemy. Um, and specifically, it's about why do Gnostic people care about alchemy? Why do occultists care about alchemy? And it's precisely the thing that Eden was saying. It's um, so if we think in a traditional theological framework, we have heaven and earth, or we have heaven and hell, or we have um, uh, Jehovah and uh, Satan, and you know all, all these other sort of juxtapositional uh, duologies. And the notion there is the alchemical wedding of, of these two things. So the term confusion is actually an old alchemy term originally, which means con together and fuse so to fuse things together to be confused is we literally uh referred to alloys as confusions of metal for the longest time um so it's 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 that physical metaphor but in sort of this metaphysical space and so uh i'm uh what i'm saying is i'm dumb and that should have been fucking obvious to me <laughs> what you said it out loud and i went Oh yeah, no, because that's the whole. Because even in, I even drew a fucking chart of it as I was talking. Because even in the progression of the tarot, the fool's position is both the beginning and the end of the path. But notably, it's not just the beginning or the end. It has to be both at the same time. That's what gives the fool all of its power. Um, but, but I think also like she's of, offering, she's offering you like a way off the path, right? Like I think the problem with the fool. I can't believe we're doing Calvino, Langdon. <laughs> I wasn't going to do Calvino. Um, the, the, well, we're the, also the, doing uh, Alan Moore here. Because we never yeah, did too. get to do uh, Promethea, the great ghost that hovers over this oh. show. It was too powerful. <laughs> it, it is too powerful. So uh, and what I was going to say is that the problem of the fool is that he's still in the deck, right? Like, there's no escape. Um, he's We're always walking that path, and Clark is trying to offer us a sort of like acceptance that is an escape, right? Like once you stop searching for who you were, who you are, what the world means, um, people versus other people and interests and so on and, and accept, you know, um, the inherent. So this is why I said retreat. That's why I said the book retreats, right? Because there's something, of course, I'm going to do boober, right? If we're already doing like our cliches, if you try to like reach out to the world and grab it and like grab it by the throat and tell tell me what it means like that meme with the mushroom right tell me the <laughs> of God. uh if you if you mean? try yeah 
uh, best Explain meme. to Lewis to me now! <laughs> exactly. But, by the way, that's the best meme. Like, the, the pistol to the mushroom, tell me the name of God, and I can, you can't kill me in a way that matters. Um, that's the best meme ever made. So if you try to, like, grab the world by its throat and, and, and shake it and go, tell me, tell me what you mean, then it's always going to escape you. Like, the harder you're going to clutch at, at meaning, the more the world is going to retreat from you. And there's a sort of... Um, acceptance and surrender that is necessary in order to experience uh, the world as it is. And I think that's um, for me. Yeah, go ahead. There's this uh, Buddhist saying, I guess it's not like a cone, but just a saying of like a fool looks at a mountain and sees a mountain, a someone who's starting out on the Buddhist path, looks at a mountain and sees like the emptiness of all things and causality and how the mountain was once flat and it will one day disappear and it's everything is flowing together uh, but like a buddhist a, a true buddha looks at a mountain and sees a mountain um that's kind of the point that's sorenis hello uh, oh yeah still here oh wow that was a big old hiccup well, yeah yeah the hang up though it it oh, it's funny because just... it paused and then when it came back it went exactly to the point where you... <laughs> yeah well, but Sorry, it what, helps what? that I knew that saying, and I, I believe Gareth, or not Gareth, you're Eden. I believe Eden also knew the... Uh... Yeah, wait, wait, but Gareth, are you here? Do we have you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you can hear me, right? Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, there was... Oh, oh. you woke up again. Yeah, oh, you're geez. fading in and out. Oh, um, I'm... Yeah, He's I'm being still... taken by the labyrinth. It's no, Calvino, I... man. <laughs> I can... Now we uh, can. Yes. You... Yeah, I can hear you guys. You nope. can hear me. You cut no. out again. Yeah, oh. you cut out. Hold on. Uh, okay, how do I fix this? Um, While he dabbles with sounds... that, we'll, we'll continue Stop. to talk about the occult. It like I can hear, I can see that it's recording at my end. Yeah, so... that sounds better. Now, now, now it's good. Was... Now it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Anyway, internet hiccup, and you're you're in. Uh, so in in the ever uh, hastening uh, race between which of our three nations is the very worst uh, between <laughs> the United States, Israel, and and the UK. Um, I believe the UK is temporary ta temporarily taking the lead on account yeah. of you have a fuel an entirely predictable fuel crisis <laughs> stemming that from we Brexit. caused ourselves. We we totally <laughs> totally caused this entirely ourselves. The not world just... asked you not to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it wasn't just Brexit either. It was um, we just uh, you know those like giant fuel uh, gas containers. Uh, we just yeah. like decommissioned all of them. So we stopped being able to con to contain the gas that fuels our homes uh, because I, hate I don't know film. vibes. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, very very stupid country right now. Hey, and we're, at we're least also getting, the queen is um, dead. Yeah, good. Uh, we're also well, getting um, like special economic zones where there's no laws. Um, Great. That, yeah, so I've read. Think, I've read Judge Dredd. Yeah, yeah. we're, we're kind of getting Judge those. Dredd. So maybe we should wrap up the discussion of Piranesi before Gareth oh, yeah. is abducted by uh, yeah, the king's obviously. majestical ninjas or whatever. Yeah, so I'm going to be like one of the things on podcast. Oh, sorry. One of the Go things on. that I quite quite like about this book, and one of the things that, and this speaks a lot, I think, to especially the kind of material that um, Gareth and I are quite fond of. She clearly is, like any good British fantasy author, quite aware of. Um, the occult and its symbology and its function. That's that's plainly apparent in this. 
Um, but as you were mentioning, or as sort of like a rejoinder to what you were saying, Eden, a lot of these methods are, the goal of them is that escape. Um, so it's like you witness that you are within a labyrinth or something, and you use these, you know, various occult methodologies in order to find a way to get out. And ironically, those are embodied by, by the two primary figures. You have the rationalist and the poet in, uh, in Ketterly, who does, who is able to access this space, not through, um, not through ecstasy or ritual or anything like that, but simply sort of returning to, to, uh, the most creative and fluid part of his mind versus you have Lawrence who has to go through the right of the magician. Like he, he is the ritual magician. And obviously she, she presents that sort of the true path there is not either one of those, it's this other third thing, and it's by being so enraptured by the path itself that both of these two have completely lost the ability to actually ever attain what it is that they're looking for. Mm. And, like, I'd posit that he does actually come in, that Piranesi comes into acquisition of the wisdom of the house, because, as you mentioned, that alchemical state at the end of pure acceptance, that he doesn't see the house and the world as separate. They are one and the same and everything embodies all elements of both at all times. That kind of thing is the wisdom that they were looking for, but they yeah. could not ever see it because of the lens through which yeah. they were attempting to find it. Like, like Eden said, it's like you, you try and grab something, it's going to slip through your fingers. But if you immerse yourself in it, like Piranesi does to the point where he loses his original self completely, um, then he can fully understand what the ha what the house means, um, which it's is also, kind of also... almost it doesn't mean anything. It's just a place. You're just in it. You're just living its rhythms and uh, seeing the various um, statues without even knowing that they allude to Chronicles of Narnia or, or anything else. The statues are just me... the statues. It reminds me very much of the Invisibles in that way, of especially the ending of the oh, Invisibles. Oh, yeah. uh, damn. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Where it's like, <laughs> it's about, because to be fair, he has a very different, so going back to the image of the fool, he has a very different relationship um, to either someone who lives within the world but does not witness the world, so his original self, or someone who witnesses the world fully but does not live in the world, which would be kind of like Piranesi. It's specifically finding that fusion state of the two that it's not you're not uh so we get back to sort of your your thing about the buddha it's like what's the difference between the initiate and the buddha then if they're both seeing the mountain as the mountain and it's there's this like almost invisible or impossible to enunciate like depth to the mountain that becomes a flatness I don't know. That, that's one of the things that I loved about this book. This book clearly had the same amount of thought and mechanical work that went into it as her thousand plus page opus. Like it makes sense that this book took as long as it did to, to write. Um, although granted she, she deals with chronic fatigue and uh, different chronic ailments as well. So there's an element of that that plays into it. Um, uh, one, this is a big testament to, like, even people dealing with uh, great disabilities can produce fucking phenomenal work. Um, yeah. And it, uh, apparently it actually predates Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I don't, I don't know if she actually wrote any of it. Maybe she had the idea uh, before then. But, yeah, so it, it's 
potentially like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Noir was in starting 1993. So it could be like a 30 year old idea that she's finally brought to fruition in uh, 2020. One of the other like buried, one of the other buried components that I loved tremendously is she borrows a notion um, from the Egypt cycle by John Crowley. Now, granted, he didn't invent it either. They're both drawing it from the same kind of place. But given that she's <laughs> she was reading and writing fantasy in the early 90s, she ran into the Egypt cycle because it was winning a shitload of awards in the late 80s to like mid 90s. It only actually finished in 2007 as well, um, despite only being four books. Um, and that's the idea that um, so if we make a timeline that's like a horizontal one, and obviously it's the normal like, you know, we have year the zero year of the universe up to whatever. But then we draw a series of vertical lines off of it. And the vertical line is however many years have elapsed since that year. So basically you create a big ass triangle. The idea that up until maybe the 15 or 1600s, the world literally worked the way that magicians and alchemists and mythologists believed that the, literally that is the physics of the world and that rationality quite literally changed the physics of the world not just from that moment forward but also that moment backward so mm -hmm. like it's kind of like a more mythological take on the whole uh, bicameral mind idea exactly where, um, yeah. and that the, the whole egypt cycle is premised on that and is premised on he refers to this mythical previous state as egypt with an ae and it's um, magicians are attempting to return to that space. And this is the turning of the age of Aquarius into the age of, I forget the next one. Um, but he plays around with that a lot. And that's sort of the big thing of the, the whole book cycle is supposed to cover the 12 houses um, and uh, the path, the pathway of the human life and all these other sort of um, magical processes overlaid onto each other to give it a structure. Um, I, uh, fun fact, I uh, based the draft of my first novel, which was um, kind of bad, uh, also on that. And uh, I did a much worse job um, because uh, I'm so, a much worse writer than John Crowley. But I love how she she tucked that in there as well, like on top of all of, all of these other literary things that she just sort of folded together. So Beautiful, beautiful work. I'm going to do one sword stroke. And both cut off the discussion on the book and also hijack the musical choice for this episode. <laughs> Can Devilish. Cannot stop you because my uh, ninjutsu is too strong. Um, anyway, Susanna Clark, Piranesi, read it. It's very good. It's also yes. short. You'll read it very quickly. That's good. Mm -hmm. You consume more, more books, read more efficiently, <laughs> document everything you read so that the algorithm knows what to recommend you next. Um, <laughs> but this is really is a fantastic book. Mm -hmm. And... Um, once again, my wife was correct. Uh, and and don't let the fact we've like dumped a load of names and occult uh, concepts at you make you believe it's not incredibly easy to read. It, yeah. it, it's a fun supernatural thriller at the end of yeah. the day. Yeah, like, you can read this with I, no I mean, they listen to Jeff's sentence, Gareth. Yeah. They know that like we, we can't be trusted. <laughs> I, finished, I finished this in two days, handed it to my fiancé, who also finished it in two days. This thing is, like, from a craft level, that's the thing that I find most fantastic about this. Because she layers a really dense amount of cross-references and information pulled from all kinds of places. 
But if you don't know that, it doesn't affect your readability. This thing just flies by. It's just, yeah. it's, there's so much that you can pull out of it if you want to. It's like, yeah. that. it's it's masterful. That That's the part where I'm like, oh my fucking God. Like a novel through subtraction. Yeah. Fucking amazing. Yeah. She's very good at what she does. So let's talk about someone else, like a band that are very good at what they do. There's a band out of Queens called Fleige, Fleige, F-L-I-E-G-E, Fleige, um, however you want to pronounce it. They make fantastic, fantastic um, avant-garde, black metal, death metal, what, what have you. They released one of 2020's most underrated albums, The Invisible Seam. I recommend that you both listen to it if you haven't. Um, it is very, very good. And I just remembered, talking about what we should play, I just remembered that they dropped a new single from their upcoming album, releasing on <laughs> November 4th. One day they'll wonder what happened here. Um, and you'll be happy to hear, I believe, that this is um, a retelling of The Thing. Right? <laughs> um, John Carpenter's The Thing. So a more like death sentence album I, I don't know if there is one um and the first single i have the album the single as well is extremely good it's called jaws of life and this album is even more out there and genre shifting and experimental than the previous one so instead of the avant-garde kind of black metal it goes into like cosmic grandiose kind of black metal and more uh death influences some dungeon synth new wave even like 80s shred guitar music is on this album fuck yeah uh, it's extremely good and this track does a very good job of kind of like getting across why as it runs from shrieks muscular riffing and just like an energy that's really hard to contain so i just hijacked the choice and we're gonna play Let's do it flages yeah. maybe someone can write to me and tell me how to pronounce this uh Jaws of Life. John Carpenter is one of my favorite um, filmmakers of all time. Uh, Prince of Darkness, probably like a very um, in, influenced me way more than any other like kind of crappy eighties horror movie possibly could. But uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah. So after you listen to this, probably amazing song. Uh, pretty soon we're going to be talking about. Um, Grant Morrison's out, uh, new book, uh, Luda, which is on my floor right now. I'll be reading it in the bathtub tonight. Um, we're also going to be talking to uh, Philippa Snow about her book, um, uh, which, as you know, means violence, which is about uh, Jackass, um, the show. Uh, it's really good. Um, and a bunch of other stuff. I think you guys have some ideas as well. But yeah, we'll currently. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, I uh, am most likely going to interview um, Trevor from Putrescene and Yvonne from Cosmoger about their uh, their split LP that came out recently. Oh yeah, very good. It's excellent. And Langdon and I are also reading the Physiognomy uh, by Jeffrey Ford, which is a weird fantasy novel <laughs> released in 1997 that has the worst and most annoying and most uh, uh, fun to hate protagonist that I've ever encountered. <laughs> so expect that. Cool. He's the worst. I hate him. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, here's Feig, 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 Feig. 
Jaws of Life. Enjoy. Kidding. <laughs> 